Amen. Would you grab your Bibles and open to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13. If you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, it is very near the back of the Bible. So start in the back and start flipping forward. You will find it soon. Uh, we're going to look at just a couple verses today. We'll bounce around a bit. We're in this series called Living Counter. And the idea of the series is that there is a world around us uh, with a cultural flow that you might picture like a rushing river. And that, that river is running headlong away from the heart of Jesus and the truth of the scriptures. And if we don't put our feet down, we will flow along with the culture. The reality is you and I are being shaped by the culture around us, and most of the time we're not aware of it. And so what, we've, uh, what we're seeking to do with this series is to talk about the, the ways the Scripture invites us to be strong in the things that Jesus is strong in so that our feet would stick on the ground and we would be able to live counter to the flow of the world around us. And so if I was to summarize the series, I would say it can be a kind of all put together in the phrase, this thing of God must be stronger than that thing of the culture. Our, our, our entire work here is to see that the things of God are, are strengthened in us so that we'd be able to stand against the flow of the culture around us. And so as we dive in today, uh, I want to start with a story. Uh, some of you are familiar with the name Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield in July 1997 found herself sitting in her pickup truck in the driveway of Ken and Floyd Smith's house. She had been invited to dinner. And she was getting ready to go in. Now, that may not sound like a profound beginning to a story to you, but let me give you some backstory. Rosaria Butterfield had her doctorate from the Ohio State University in feminist studies and was currently the head of the English department at Syracuse University, a tenured professor specializing uh, not just in feminist studies, but in a, a, a specialty called queer theory, which is a part of critical theory. She was a self-described militant, feminist, lesbian, atheist, and she hated Christians. And Ken Smith was a Presbyterian pastor who had invited her over for dinner. The invitation came in response to an op-ed article that Dr. Butterfield had written uh, based on a Promise Keepers event that was happening in the city of Syracuse. Some of you remember Promise Keepers from the 90s, a men's movement that was happening there. Uh, Dr. Butterfield was working on a book about why Christianity was terrible and should be banished from the earth because of all of the awful things that uh, Christianity had done in the world. And this op-ed flowed out of that. I'll uh, give, give you some of Dr. Butterfield's words in the way that she uh, described this event. She talks about that Abed. She said, in it, I opposed them for their backward and misogynist gender politics and their threat against democracy. I have always read all of my hate mail, she says. Call me a masochist. And I came to the conclusion that Ken's letter of opposition was the kindest hate mail I had ever received. I also liked the fact that Ken had the right pedigree to help me with my research. When Ken and his wife, Floyd, invited me to dinner, I said, yes, my motives were clear. This would be good for my research. I considered Ken Smith to be my potential unpaid research assistant. But the task at hand was daunting, she says. And that's why I sat in my truck so long, not quite ready to knock on the front door of this house and walk across its threshold. Somehow, 
I would have to emerge from this meal, Dr. Butterfield says, without having an emotional breakdown. She sat in the truck feeling this weight. Uh, Listen to the way this woman, brilliant woman trained in language and ideas, expresses what she felt in that truck. To be hated for who you are carries insidious violence. And I had been on the receiving end of that before with Christians. Dealing with Christians was toxic work. Like deep sea diving, you could stay down there only for so long before the long-term consequences took hold. I wanted to learn why Christians hated me so, but maintain with integrity my point of view. The prospect made me sick to my stomach. Dr. Butterfield, with her gifting, is able to put into words what many feel, sometimes rightfully so, as they approach the Christian community. The approach to the prospect made me sick to my stomach. That was how Dr. Butterfield felt. Here's the question I want to ask you. How do you think Ken and Floyd Smith felt? As they were sitting in their home knowing that this brilliant woman who was steadfastly opposed to everything they believed in sat in their driveway, ready to walk in the door. What did they feel? Here's this brilliant woman, literally has a doctorate in words and ideas to be used as tools, and in this case, to be used as weapons. Knowing that she was opposed to them and they were opposed to her, how did they feel? How would you feel if she was sitting in your driveway? The philosopher Hegel first coined the term the other. It's been taken by sociologists to talk about those who are different than us in any significant or even minor way, whether it be race and ethnicity, whether it be background and experience, whether it be socioeconomic status, whether it be uh, education. When those, are, those people are different than us, The sociologists tell us they become the other. And what happens is the other subconsciously becomes distanced from us. Us and the other move farther and farther away. Now, as I say that, you may say, "Uh, come on. Like, uh, that... That's not really true. That sounds like a lot of psychobabble. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. But let's just do a a, a quick mind experiment. And for the sake of this mind experiment, I don't know all of you really well, but I'm going to assume that the vast majority of you, if I'm asking you this, would say, I would not want to separate from someone based on their race or ethnicity, their socioeconomic background, their education status, their experience. I wouldn't want to be separate from them. I'm inclusive. In fact, the whole idea of separating based on those things is repulsive to me. I'm going to assume that for the sake of this mind experiment. Now, as a mind experiment, I want you to call to mind 10 to 15 or 20 people that you regularly spend time with that you don't have to. So work doesn't count. When, When you choose to spend time with people, bring to mind 10 to 15 to 20 people that you spend time with. How many of them are the same as you in all of those categories, race and ethnicity, socioeconomic status, educational background, experience? My guess is, for a bunch of you, probably not just the majority, but the large majority, all of them 
or almost all of them are the same in at least three of those four categories. Why? Because they're the other. Because there's a, a, a force at work within the culture around us that pushes us towards people who are like us and away from people who are other than us, different than us. Miroslav Volf, which is a great name, by the way. If you want to name a kid, uh, you're trying to figure out a name, Miroslav, that should be high on the list. Miroslav Volf wrote an excellent book called Exclusion and Embrace. And uh, what, what Volf says is our entire culture is built on the persistent practice of exclusion. It's subconscious. It's not something we, at, we set out to do, but subconsciously we exclude others because we see the other, again, subconsciously, as more of a threat than a gift. We fail to see the idea that others might grow us and change us, better us. Instead, we see them as a threat to our way of life, to our way of thinking, to our comfort, to our preference. Andrew Shepard uh, wrote a book with a fascinating title, The Gift of the Other. Andrew Shepard says this, building relationships with a stranger has become increasingly difficult in an age where the dual discourses of the, quote, war on terror and, quote, the market hold sway. The influence of these pervasive discourses means others come to be conceived as threats. Now, he's going to explain that in just a second. The stranger is either explicitly feared, a potential terrorist coming in to destroy civilization and our place in it, or is simply another abstract commodity, at best to be tolerated or at worst competing for limited resources, therefore one to be struggled against. Now you may say, that's not the way I think. But as you look at the world around you, and if we're honest enough to look at our social circles, you begin to see that subconsciously there is a, a force, it seems, that separates us. Shepard says, when this way of thinking works its way even subconsciously into us, we respond by a progression of four different uh, ways. The first one is simply elimination. We try to eliminate people from our circle, either relationally or uh, legislatively, and in most extreme cases with violence. We try to uh, eliminate the other. When elimination doesn't work, we move to, Shepard says, assimilation. Assimilation basically meaning we make the other like us. We all become one humanity, and therefore, if we're all the same, there are no others. We try to uh, take away the differences from people so that we would be the same. If assimilation doesn't work, uh, Shepard says we move to domination. That sounds uh, very strong. But basically what he's saying is that we, we normalize our behaviors, our language, our ways of operating, our cultural norms. We normalize them and ask everyone else to come under them, therefore having, again, a unified culture so that there are no others. And if that doesn't work, he says the final step is demonization. We see the other as the enemy. And when we see the other as the enemy, we now can justify any behavior because that behavior is done against the unnamed, unknown other, the enemy apart from us. Now that sounds really, really heavy. But I think if we're honest, we see a progression like this happening all around us. There's this cultural flow 
that I can only describe as a culture of fear. I, I don't want to wade further into politics than necessary, because that's always dangerous ground to walk into. But one of the most fascinating things over the last 18 months is the, that both sides of the equation in a polarized country, in a polarized society, both sides of the society have been driven by and even using the language of fear. You better watch out because you should be afraid of. Be, be afraid of government control. Be afraid of the virus. Be afraid of being with other people. Be afraid of not being with other people. Be afraid of Marxism. Be afraid of socialism. Be afraid of fascism. Be afraid of all that could happen if this, if this, if this. The, the entire narrative has been built around fear. And if we are not aware, we will be caught in the flow. Not because you're intentionally wanting to, but because this is the air we breathe. And so the question is, is there a practice from the way of Jesus, a historical practice within the church that stands against the way of fear? Well, there better be, or that would have been a long introduction for nothing, right? So, yes, indeed there is. Uh, the practice of hospitality. As simple as hospitality sounds, hospitality must be greater than fear. Now, when you hear hospitality, don't hear Martha Stewart. Don't hear like a, a perfect setting at the table with like nice little lights hanging all around and, uh, you know, nice little pastries or something. Uh, hear the willingness to open my life to the people around me. Hospitality must be greater than fear. And that brings us to Hebrews chapter 13. So Lizzie is going to come and read for us the last verse of Hebrews 12. And then the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 13. Listen to the word of God as she comes to read. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Amen. Thank you, Lizzie. So there's three things about hospitality I want to pull out of this passage. Uh, we'll jump around the scriptures a bit in order to illustrate all of that. The first one is that hospitality is first a response. Before it's an action, hospitality is a response. Secondly, hospitality requires action. It does make, we are forced to step into it. And finally, hospitality is a two-way gift. Hospitality is a response, an action, and a two-way gift. We're going to walk through that. But let's start with the word hospitality. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews uses that term, let brotherly love continue. And as brotherly love continues, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In Greek, the word hospitality is fascinating. It's a compound word that brings together two ideas. The word is philoxenia, and it brings together the term philos, which is uh, love, a friendship love, and xenos, which is the other or explicitly the foreigner. And so what he's saying is love for the foreigner. But within the context of Hebrews 13, it's even more fascinating. There's a wordplay that we miss in English because he starts by saying, let brotherly love continue. You're probably familiar with the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's literally the Greek word. And so the writer of the Hebrews is saying, let your Philadelphia flow into your philoxenia. 
Let one flow into the other. And the question is, why? What's it, what's it a response to? Let, let it continue. It must have started. How did it start? Well, again, brief experiment. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you are uh, more than 50% ethnically Jewish. So you would trace your roots back to the nation of Israel. We have uh, one. No, you raised your hand, but you're lying. So one. <laughs> lying in church. Watch out. Lightning coming your way, buddy. So, so let the record show, not only today, but over the course of three worship gatherings, we have one. Congratulations, you win. Yeah, that's great. If you are not ethnically Jewish, so if you're not Brooke, you have been shown hospitality because you were not part of the kingdom of God. You were not part of the people of the promise. Now, we tend to, in North America, read everything as though we're the center of the universe. I know that's a big shock to you. Um, but when we read the Bible, we tend to think that it's written to us. But, but you understand, um, you're Gentiles, and so am I. The only claim we have to the kingdom of God is by the gracious invitation of Jesus into the kingdom of God. The promise was not made to me, and it was not made to you. The promise was made to the nation of Israel, and Jesus invited you in. He's shown you hospitality. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul lays out this beautiful treatise on sin and grace. You're probably familiar with the first 10 verses. Uh, we look at them a lot, and they're, uh, they're primary, they're foundational to, uh, to who we are as Christians. You're probably familiar with the, the statement on grace that Paul makes in uh, verses 8 and 9. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, but it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. But Paul then goes on and continues the argument, not just to the Jewish people, but to us as Gentile people. Listen to the way that he says it. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Sorry, typo. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So, so what Paul says is that Jesus in his work has with intentionality broken down the dividing wall that separates people. There was the people of God and not the people of God. But when Jesus came with intentionality, that wall was broken down and he created one new man. I, I underlined that word new because if you've been with us for a while, you know that's a unique Greek word. There are lots of Greek words that could be used for new. Um, one primary one that Paul does not use, instead he uses this very unique word, kainos, which is not just new, but never been seen before new. So he's not talking about a better version of man. He's not talking about a, 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 the next level of humanity, man 2.0 or something. He's talking about something never been seen before. This is an idea that was profound to the early Christians, that Jewish people and Gentile people would be united as one body by this incredible and intentional work of Jesus. What I want you to hear is you were intentionally invited in. Jesus showed you hospitality. You were an outsider. 
And now you've become part of the family. You've become a brother and sister with not just one another, but with Jesus himself. You're children of the Father, God himself as our Father. You were invited in. And so first, before hospitality is an action, it's a response to the action of God. He has invited you in. And by grace, we now have the opportunity to invite others in. In fact, if you go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, hospitality is commanded in that way. Because you were a stranger, show hospitality to strangers. Because you were an outsider, because you were weak, because you were in need, show hospitality to those who are outside, who are weak, who are in need. Hospitality is a response. But then, hospitality must translate to action. So uh, verse 2 begins by saying, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Do the work. Don't just allow it to happen. Don't just go with the flow because the flow is going to take you the wrong direction. Instead, step into the work of hospitality. So stick your finger in uh, Hebrews 13 and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Uh, At the end of Jesus' life, he is teaching on a variety of these kind of uh, foundational elements that he wants his, his disciples to hear. And Matthew records this section that we're about to read as the very last thing that Jesus teaches before all of the events begin that would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. We recognize it as uh, an image of the final judgment. But in an image of the final judgment, we also see the action of hospitality. Listen, I'm going to read for us starting in uh, verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Two things I want you to see in this passage. First one is this. At the final judgment, as Jesus depicts it in Matthew chapter 25, the the marker that separates is not some complex doctrine, It's not some miraculous sign and wonder. It's not some level of teaching and understanding. It's not some certification or degree. It's a simple act of hospitality that any of us can do. Anybody 
regardless of your skill level, regardless of your maturity in Christ, regardless of your Bible knowledge, can feed hungry people. Anybody can give a thirsty person a drink of water. Anybody. It's simple. In fact, it's so easy that we miss how profound it is. Alan Hirsch, in his book, right here, right now, says uh, something I just, I think it's so fascinating. It resonates with me, at least. Maybe it will with you. If every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around a table once a week to neighbors, we would eat our way into the kingdom of God. Now, that's my language right there, right? If we would just open our homes to good conversational hospitality, we would eat our way into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God would move forward because we've been willing to have conversations with people who are other than us and just uh, invite them in, have a conversation. Now, uh, we need to remember, again, as modern Christians in North America, that the Bible, particularly the New Testament, is not written to you as an individual. I know that you um, spend hours and hours each morning alone in your room reading the scriptures yourself, or at least a couple minutes or something. But it's not specifically given to you, it's given to us. So I, I've been a proponent for a long time of the, uh, the southern version of the Bible, right, that would constantly say, uh, this is to y'all or all y'all, right, so that we would always remember this is all of us. The, the, these commands, this command of hospitality is not given to you individually. So you may say, like, look, if somebody like Dr. Butterfield was sitting in her pickup truck in my driveway, I would run out the back door and I would never come back, just leave the house, right? Like, I'm just whatever, somebody take it, I'm done. I'm out. I would never have that conversation. I'm terrified of that conversation. Here's my question for you. Can you make cookies? Because if you can make cookies, you're good. Can, can, you, can you pour coffee? Even bad coffee. It's okay. Good things happen around a coffee pot, even if the coffee's bad. Better if the coffee's good. But anyway. This church, for instance, just take this faith community, as Steve alluded to, is not short of people who like to talk. So invite somebody else to come be part of the conversational hospitality. You just make the cookies. It's fine. See, we together are invited to love the world around us. And so it may be that our individual gifts don't all fit into this flow, but we together as a community can invite others into the community. John Tyson in his book, Sacred Roots, you may have heard this quote before. I've used it in the past. I love this quote. Uh, Listen to what he says. What would love look like if it showed up dozens of times a week in small but profound ways? Meals cooked, prayers prayed, songs sung, scripture studied, games played, parties thrown, tears shed, reconciliation practiced, resources given. What if we stopped attending community groups and became groups of communities? What if our homes stopped being places we hid from the world, but havens to which the world comes for healing. What if our community was for them and not for us? What if we, as groups of people, diverse and gifted ourselves, used our diverse giftings to love the world around us, to invite the other into our circle? Hospitality requires a step. It requires action, us moving forward. So the first thing I want you to see in Matthew 25 is that what is the dividing line in the kingdom of God is something very, very simple. But here's the other thing I want you to see. Both groups of people, the sheep and the goats, were shocked 
about what Jesus said. They were, they were totally surprised. So th- those who were sent into the lake of fire, they, they're saying, but when did we ever see you hungry and thirsty and in prison and, and naked? And wh- wh- We never saw you like that. We only saw people who were beneath us. If we had seen you, we would have done something about it. We, we didn't know. What, what do you mean we didn't love you? We just didn't love these other people. And the same thing with the righteous. When did we see you hungry and thirsty and in need? When, when did we do that? We, we didn't intend to love you. We just naturally loved the world around us. We did the basic things that Jesus calls us to do. Like, we were changed. We were shown hospitality. And so we showed others hospitality. We didn't do that for a reward. We didn't do it because we thought it was you. We just loved people. Hospitality, like the gospel itself, is not about trying harder, but it's about being transformed. The righteous, in Matthew 25, had been transformed. They were just living out of their transformation. So hospitality is first a response. We recognize that we have been shown hospitality, and that love changes us so that hospitality becomes an action. But thirdly, hospitality is a two-way gift. So if you go back to Hebrews chapter 13, there's this twist that the writer of the Hebrews gives us. It it would be right for the writer of the Hebrews to say, practice hospitality because you have been shown hospitality. That's true. It would be right for this to say, practice hospitality because God has called you to, he's commanded you to, and you should be obedient. That would be true. And it's not that he doesn't say that. He just throws this twist in. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Profound. He said show hospitality not just because you need to, not because you should, not because you have received hospitality, but show hospitality because there's a divine encounter that's out there for you if you will show hospitality. It's fascinating. There's this, uh, there's this idea bound up in the text that when we open up our lives and we open up our table, there's an encounter with the grace of God that all of us have, both those who've been invited to the table and those whose table's being opened. We encounter God in a unique way. Skajitani uh, kind of does this meditation on the idea of the way hospitality and hospital have the same root word. Hospital, uh, originally, if you go all the way back to the etymology, hospital was a a place for strangers, a a, a home for strangers. And there's always been this connection between an invitation in of a stranger and healing. So listen to the way that Sky talks about it. Our homes are to be hospitals, refuges of healing, radiating the light of heaven. And our dinner tables are to be operating tables, the place where broken souls are made whole again. When we lower our defenses and we begin to be truly present with one another, then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. One way that the gift operates is that when we create a space where our defenses go down and we can just be truly present with one another, the gospel begins to do healing work. God flows through us. 
So that's one way the healing goes, but what about the other way? Well, this idea of entertaining angels is, uh, has this history throughout the scriptures. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis and see what happens when people open up their lives to the divine. So last week we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, not the happy part of the story. Um, but this week I want you to see the precursor to Sodom and Gomorrah. So before Abraham has the discussion with God that we referenced last week, there are three men that show up, and Abraham chooses to show hospitality. He opens up his home and his table to these men. And when he does, it turns out these are indeed messengers of God. And when they show up, it's not just that they receive from Abraham, but they give to him. He's given knowledge. He's given insight into what God's doing in the world. And it's that conversation around that table that opens up the conversation that Abraham had with God that we talked about last week, this deep encounter with God. And then in Genesis chapter 19, these same three men go into the city of Sodom, and they are also shown hospitality by Abraham's nephew, Lot. They're invited in. We don't need to go through the entire story. But uh, they also give a gift to Lot, a profound gift, because it's through his hospitality to these angelic beings that Lot, Lot has his life spared. He literally is given life because of showing hospitality. Every time we open our lives to the divine, a gift comes to us. So if you go to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, it's literally bookended by these kinds of encounters. So Mary opens up her life to an encounter with an angelic being, and it's through that encounter that baby Jesus enters into the world and the plan of redemption continues on. At the end of Luke, there are two men, uh, maybe a man and a woman, uh, walking to Emmaus, two disciples, and uh, that encounter is not with an angel in a traditional sense, but that encounter is with the risen Jesus himself, who is hidden to them in a way that we don't fully get. But they're walking, and through that divine encounter, they begin to understand all that's happening in the world around them. And then, if you remember the story, they very specifically show hospitality. Don't go on. I want you to stay with us and eat with us. Stay here with us. And if you remember, it's when Jesus broke the bread that their eyes were open and they saw him. And they knew the resurrected Jesus. Hospitality, in a way that I can't fully explain, in a way that has a, a lot of mystery bound up in it, hospitality is one of the lenses by which we see Jesus. That's what Matthew 25 says, and that's what Hebrews 13 says. We see Jesus as we love other people. Henry Nouwen in uh, his writings wrote decades ago, and he has a section in his book, Reaching Out, that is on hospitality. Um, it, it could have been written last week in, in the way that he describes it. Listen to Nouwen's words. Our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion, always expecting an enemy to suddenly appear, intrude, and do harm. But still, that is our vocation, to convert the enemy into a guest, to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. I love that phrase, the free and fearless space. That's what our table should be. We're inviting people into a space where they don't have to be afraid, 
They don't have to position themselves or posture themselves in any way. They can simply be who they are, a free and fearless space where an encounter with God can happen. It's a two-way gift. The invitation that we're given is to take the hospitality that we've been shown and to show it to other people. So back to July 1997. What happened? Dr. Butterfield sitting in the driveway waiting to go into the Smith's home. Well, she went in. That's the short story. She went in and had dinner. And then she came back the next week and had dinner again. And then she came back the next week and had dinner again. And over the next several years, at least once a week, sometimes multiple times a week, she spent time in the Smith's home. And as she spent time with them in the simple act of hospitality, the preconceptions that Dr. Butterfield had about God were broken down. The misperceptions that she had about the people of God were broken down. And Dr. Butterfield was able to truly encounter Jesus. Listen to, listen to her words. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confidence script. Not that night, or the years after, or the hundreds of meals, or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. Long before I ever walked through the doors of a church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible and with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. One couple that said, come over for dinner. You can be you. We're not afraid of you. We're not afraid of all that you believe, and we're not going to try to convince you otherwise. We're just going to love you, and we're going to walk with you, and we're going to show you who God really is. Dr. Butterfield ultimately bowed the knee to Jesus, and her entire life is transformed. Believe it or not, she's now married to a Presbyterian pastor <laughs> and is using her home to show hospitality to the world around her. She wrote this book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's a beautiful primer on hospitality. Listen to the way that she describes hospitality. Radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. That's it. How do we combat a culture of fear that separates us? How do we combat the flow of a culture that says everything is about us and them? That the other is to be feared, that the other is coming after you and your stuff and your way of living? How do, how do we combat a world that says everything's closing in around us? We open up our lives. We show hospitality. We remember this is not our final home anyway, so all that we have belongs to him. Let's use what we have for his glory. The invitation for us is to very simply love the people around us in practical ways. Ways that when we do them seem so simple and so easy that they seem like a throwaway. And so what ends up happening is our preference, our time, our resources, our own agenda gets in the way and we never get to the most basic things. Hospitality must be greater than fear. We need to open up our lives. And as we open our lives, we see the flow of the Spirit come and work through us. 
Ashley's team's going to come and lead us in a response. And as they do, I want to invite you just to make this practical. There's probably, even as I'm talking, a person or a, a home in your neighborhood or a group of people that immediately come to mind. There's maybe a, an action that springs into your head. I don't want to ask you to make that tangible and practical. Write that down. R- remember, that's what God's calling me into. And look, it's simple. This is not PhD level stuff. <laughs> this is opening your home to the people around you. Opening your life to the people around you. And through that simple act, God does profound work. So I want to pray over us, and I want to ask that God does this work in and through us. So would you just open up your hands and receive? Jesus, you have, by your grace, given us the gift of hospitality. You have invited us in. And so, God, we now want to be used by you for your purposes in the world. So would you show us in clear ways who you're inviting us to reach out to, Show us in clear ways the way that we can do the practical, loving things to feed the hungry and give a drink of cold water to the thirsty, to love people tangibly and practically so that some would turn and experience you in a new and profound way. And so God, work in us, guide us as your people. We are your hands and feet in the world around us. And so would you lead us, we pray. Thank you for the love that has made us as strangers part of the family of God. May we do the same for the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.